Coal Fire, Part 1, featuring Sharon Combs, Jake Ford, Jeff Gardner, Chad Bradford, Victoria Hoffman, and Peter Von Schally. before you know it. And you heard it here first, folks. When the troops roll in and they take your guns and they, they storm your churches, and, and, and I'm telling you, that's the first oh thing my God, you're Ronnie, take please your turn that mind rot off. I can't believe you still listen to that garbage. Lee exclaimed, though not unkindly. They're trying to make you angry on purpose. And with your blood pressure? Uh, can we please just listen to music? Ronald Ronnie Bourbain took his eyes off the road to look at his stepdaughter and took in a breath. Okay, sweet pea. He said with little conviction and flipped to a classic rock station playing Fleetwood Mac. Lee scanned the trees racing past the window, now leafless and shimmering above a blanket of snow. It's true what they're saying, though. Ronnie continued, after what he felt was an appropriate pause. And I just have to say, the problem with your generation is that you're afraid of hard work. You all just want handouts all the time. Lee braced herself for the tirade. When we worked the mine, you had to be ready to show up and work. It was tough, but we did it. Day in and day out. Now you can't get these kids to sweep a damn floor without wanting a union to step in and pat them on the back. And I still can't believe you went to one of those liberal art schools. I mean, I'm proud of you for putting yourself through it because you know your mom and I would never. But what the hell did you go to school for? To teach art? Now oh, that's a soft job. I still really can't see the value of teaching that kind of thing to kids. I got a real job when I was 10, and I never stopped working. Now there's an education. As Ronnie droned on, Lee could feel herself drifting away, numbing herself a tactic she used most of her life. She allowed the hypnotic drone of the Chevy's engine to dull her senses. These kinds of talks used to bother her when she was growing up, but now she was almost thankful for them, considering that Ronnie had suffered a heart attack a couple years back. If it was between listening to Ronnie spew his vile nonsense alive, or hearing nothing from him dead, she preferred him alive. Ronnie had loved her, and raised her and her older brother as his own. He was not always nice, but he was there for them. Not to mention the fact that he had never beat on them as her father had. Ronnie, dad. Lee began. The utterance of the word dad stopped Ronnie in his tracks as it always did, and his face flushed red as the hint of a smile touched his lips. What I do is important. 
if you could see the good I do for those kids who have literally nothing else in their lives, you would see how necessary my job is. Technically, Lee was a social worker with a specialty in art therapy for pre-K to first graders. What did you want me to do? Work in a coal mine? The sting of her rebuke landed hard on Ronnie, and he pursed his lips into a slight frown. Ronnie's coal mine had closed down years ago, and the pain of losing the only way of life he had ever known still hovered just beneath his skin. Sensing the nerve she had touched, Lee reached out a hand and placed it on Ronnie's shoulder, giving him a squeeze. Uh, sorry, Ronnie, she said, and she sighed internally. As usual, she was doing the emotional heavy lifting for her family. It's fine, hon. Ronnie responded as he reached for a cigarette in his breast pocket, his tacit protest. Cracking the window and letting in an icy blast, Ronnie lit his Marlboro Red and allowed himself a large drag, exhaling with a great sigh. Are you sure you're ready for this, sweet pea? Yeah, I... I think so, said Lee choosing not to chastise him about his smoking for the moment. You haven't been back in a long while. Ronnie continued carefully. Yeah, I know. Lee said and leaned back in her seat, resuming her dutiful watch of the landscape. It wasn't long before they rolled past a rusted old sign that read, Welcome to Deepwood, home of the Deepwood Mine, in faded red script. They pulled into what was once a thriving small town of about 12,000 and stopped in the middle of Main Street, now nothing more than a deserted lane. Most of the buildings had been reduced to their foundations, but a few boarded-up storefronts remained as chilling reminders of what once was. Memories flooded into Lee's mind. Lee biking down the street on her rusty Schwinn her brother not too far ahead of her as they made their way to the drugstore to spend their hard-earned coins on candy, or perhaps even a toy. Darren slugging Lee in the face to help her extricate a loose tooth. It had worked. The tooth had fallen onto the sidewalk, though Darren was severely punished, and Lee had a welt on the side of her face the size of a golf ball. Lee shrugged off the memories and opened the car door allowing icy air to envelop her as she walked out into the town square. Ronnie remained in the car. She didn't blame him. Where the park and town hall used to be, there now sat an empty lot, and the snow was conspicuously non-existent on its dirt surface. As she walked closer, she noticed heat waves emanating from the ground below, distorting the air around them. Cracks in the earth revealed steam venting into the frigid air, indicative of the fire raging below its barren surface. Lee winced as an acrid smell stung her nose, and she turned away, heading back to Ronnie's truck. She sat in silence for some time. Still there? Ronnie asked. Yeah, it's... it's still there. Lee responded and let out a melancholic chuckle. <laughs> they drove a few minutes to a neighborhood just east of Main Street, passing Lee's old schools and playgrounds now devoid of life. Most of the houses that once lined the streets were gone or empty, but a few remained occupied, and she wondered who had chosen to stay in Deepwood. 
they rolled up to a gray two-story house surrounded by a chain-link fence. Upon the sight of the domicile, Lee's chest tightened and a swell of emotion threatened to sweep her away. She did her best to numb herself, drift away, and allow the swelling pain blooming in her chest to fade. There had been a time when Lee used pills to facilitate her numbness, but after watching her father's alcoholism and brother's devastating struggle with drugs, had sworn off any form of mood-altering substance beside the occasional drink. They rolled into the driveway. Lee took a moment to appreciate the front yard that she had played in with her brother for all those years before she turned and went to the front door. Lee stood in the doorway taking in her childhood home. Most of it was exactly as she remembered before she, her mother, and her brother had left. The decor was still late 70s kitsch, and the rooms were still tidy and kept in good order. Most of the furniture was the same. Her dad's large easy chair, a tan couch, a white linoleum kitchen table. Though their old box TV was now a larger flat screen. Granny Louise had kept the place up pretty well in their absence. Pictures littered the walls. Lee and her brother Darren at various ages. Pictures of Lee's mother, Frances, pregnant and holding a cat. And finally, Lee's personal favorite. Lee and Darren hanging upside down from their favorite tree branch in the backyard. Giant upside down smiles on their innocent faces. Noticeably absent from the pictures was her father, William, though he was known as Bud. Only one picture remained of him, and you had to look intently in the back corner of the room. The small picture showed Bud in his late teens, blonde and handsome, sitting shirtless against a low squat wall, a lake behind him and a fat grin plastered on his face. Francis had taken the picture shortly after they had started dating in high school, just before their marriage. Looks like your Granny Louise kept this place up pretty good. Huh. A damn shame she's gone. Ronnie said and started to light another cigarette. Granny Louise had been Bud's mother, and Ronnie and Bud had grown up as best friends, so Ronnie had known Granny Louise well. Lee looked around, feeling overwhelmed at the task ahead of them. Where do we start? Lee asked, clearing a lump from her throat. Wordlessly, Ronnie went back outside to his pickup and re-entered with a stack of unmade cardboard boxes, a cooler, and a black sharpie. He opened the cooler and produced two cold, cheap beers. Sighing, Lee accepted one and allowed Ronnie to pop the top before handing it over to her. The beer tasted like piss water, but she was grateful for the icy liquid as it slid down her throat. Ronnie reached into his breast pocket to produce a cigarette, but Lee stopped him with a hateful glare. How many heart attacks is it going to take, Ronnie? She scowled at him. <laughs> all right, all right. Sweet pea, I get you. With that, Ronnie put his cigs away and tossed some unmade boxes at her and the black sharpie. Now you can start by making some of these bad boys and labeling them.
Ben awoke with a start and instantly groaned. The first thing he noticed was pain. An aching, throbbing, burning pain coursing through his muscles. It was a familiar pain, one he had come to know very well over the years. The next feeling that ran through his body was intense hunger, as if he hadn't eaten in weeks. Rolling over, he blearily opened his eyes to find himself in some kind of small cabin. Creaky, old wood comprised the walls and ceiling, and the floors seemed to be covered in a layer of dust that hadn't been disturbed in ages. Sitting up, Darren noticed that he had been sleeping on a small green cot and had been using an animal hide as a blanket, bear to be exact. It was effective at chasing away the winter chill that managed to make its way through the cracks in the walls. He looked at a watch on his wrist he had recently stolen. 1.05 p.m., meaning he had slept for nearly 14 hours. Sighing, he stood and made his way to what must have been a pantry to see what he could find to eat. After wolfing down an ancient package of jerky and a can of musty beans that were well past their expiration date, Darren sat on the little green cot to calculate his next move. How long since my last hit? Darren said out loud, pounding his leg with his fist to chase away the aching in his muscles. Five days, ten hours, thirty-six minutes, and four seconds, you fucking junkie. A voice said from behind him. Darren froze and ran a hand through his dirty blonde hair. Fuck! Not you again, said Darren, shifting to look in the corner of the cabin. There stood his father, William Bud Maisie, wearing a white t-shirt, scratchy blue jeans, and that same damn long-sleeved flannel shirt he wore every day for as long as Darren could remember. His brownish blonde hair hung down to his shoulders, and a hint of a grin touched the side of his mouth as Bud gazed at his son with cold blue eyes. <laughs> yep, me again, nitwit. Oh, it's a fine mess you got yourself into again. Look, I told you to stay away from that junk, but you never listened to me, did you? Oh, you were always such a dumbass. <laughs> well, that means bullshit coming from you, you fucking drunk-ass piece of shit. Darren spat back. Know how you got here? You think you flew? You could barely walk straight after you got away from those cops. I don't need your help. You're fucking dead. Leave me alone and stay dead. Darren's hallucinations had started a few months back after he had stayed up for 36 hours on a bender. He had scored big on a robbery, didn't even need a gun. The elderly woman's purse was flush with cash and Darren had bought enough shit to shoot, smoke, and snort to last him weeks. Or so he thought. He and a couple of his friends had blown through it in days. On the third evening, Darren started noticing a shadowy figure out of the corner of his eye. By the time the figure started talking to him, it was too late. The specter of his dead father appeared to him regularly, especially when he went on long benders. Darren imagined it was a side effect of the junk and lack of sleep, but lately his dad had started coming to him when he was sober. He had seen people have crazy hallucinations while they were tweaking, but this felt like something different altogether. Yet how had Darren gotten here, 
and where was here? He combed his memory, and a few hazy images came back to him. His hand covered in a ratty towel, punching through a storefront window. He had thrown caution to the wind, needing to score quickly, while he passed through this small town. Yes, he could remember more clearly now. The Jones was beginning to kick his ass. After smashing the glass, the alarm had gone off immediately, disorienting him. He had charged into the tacky gift shop, frantically trying to rip open the cash register, eventually throwing it to the floor. Alas, it was empty. In a rage, Darren kicked it, snapping something in his middle toe. He didn't care. He was angry at himself. Normally, he planned his heists, but in his haste, he had knocked over the first storefront he saw with no guard gate, barely glancing down the dark streets as he did so. It wasn't long before he could hear sirens approaching his location. He quickly glanced around to see if there was anything worth taking. Between the Pittsburgh Steelers snow globes and chintzy wooden Christmas ornaments, there wasn't much. Time was not his friend, and he began to grow more frantic. Darren finally settled on a handful of cheap-looking watches that read Pennsylvania, Virtue, Liberty, and Independence on the tiny clock faces. Darren was just in time, and as he bolted through the broken storefront window, the police were just rounding the corner. He heard their tires squeal and a distant voice yell, Hey, stop there! You! In a blind panic, Darren ran, street lamps passing overhead and washing him in their pale orange glow. This way, idiot! A familiar voice had said, his father. Fuck, not now, Darren thought as he pumped his legs. Yes, now, shit for brains, this way. They're gonna get you if you keep running around the streets. Come on, this way. Indeed, Darren could hear the sound of yelling and cars somewhere behind him, but he dared not look back. From the corner of his eye, he saw the shadowy figure of his father standing before an opening into the dense wood that surrounded the town. Without thinking, Darren broke off left into the brush and began to idly grope his way through the forest. Good. Keep going. His hallucination continued. Darren cursed as branches and brush grabbed at his coat and cursed when he realized he had dropped most of the cheap watches. He dared not stop. Somehow Darren had never seen the inside of a prison and he was intent on keeping it that way. Darren felt snow moisten his ratty boots and his feet began to tingle with numbness. But any time he thought of stopping... The hallucination of his father egged him on. This way, numbnuts. Where are we going? Darren managed to say, though his heart was exploding in his chest and his breath was ragged. You'll see when we get there, was all the hallucination told him. Darren stumbled blindly through the woods and finally paused to catch his breath by a tree, placing his hand on the trunk to hold his balance. He gazed behind him and could make out flashing lights in the distance, as well as the voices of police officers. They didn't seem to be following him into the thick woodland. He was safe for now. But another fear crept over him. The temperature was dropping rapidly, and he knew he needed to find shelter or he might freeze to death. His teeth chattered and his body ached as he hugged himself for warmth. Where to now? Fuck, I'm gonna join you in death, you old fuck. 
Not if I can help it. Come on, we're almost there. With no energy to reply, Darren trudged wearily toward the sound of the voice. He couldn't tell if the aches in his body were from the freezing cold or the heinous withdrawal symptoms he knew were approaching. He felt despair well up in his chest and paused, ready to sit down and let the cold overtake him. Don't stop now, limp dick! Come on, just a little more! Darren had no energy to respond, but anger welled up in his chest, giving him a final burst of energy. He high-stepped through a tall snowdrift and came face to face with a smallish, rickety hunting cabin. <sighs> We're here, big boy. <laughs> Good work. He could hear the hallucination stay behind him. Finding the door locked, Darren threw his weight into it. It gave easily, allowing Darren to step inside. He scanned the room and saw what must have once been a charming, quaint space. Obviously, whoever used it had not been here in a long while, as dust covered every surface. Noticing a small wood stove, Darren ran to it and began to pack it with kindling and old dried logs that were stacked nearby. Shortly, he managed to build an impressive fire, and it was at that moment that the adrenaline coursing through his body wore off and he found himself unable to keep his eyes open. Noticing a cot covered in blankets and animal skins, he wrapped himself up and passed out immediately into a dreamless sleep. Huh. You remember now, eh? His dad said, still eyeing him from the corner of the cabin. So, you ready to go now or what? Go where? Darren asked helplessly. He could feel himself starting to sweat and the aches in his body were increasing every moment. To Granny's house, idiot, you know. The place we've been trying to get for days now. Darren nodded, but didn't make any moves. It's not far from here. Few miles. You can make it on foot. I have no desire to go back to that fucking town. Darren said, staring at his feet and holding his head in his hands. No way. Son, listen. I need you to go to the old place, please. It's very important. Why would I set foot in that place, you monster? I don't want to give you anything you want! Without warning, Darren lunged at Bud and stretched his arms out to tackle him. <coughs> Darren imagined ripping his father's face off and beating him into a bloody pulp. But when Darren lowered his shoulder to take his father to the ground, he found himself connecting with solid wall and tumbling back down. <coughs> Darren howled with rage and pain. Bud's voice appeared from the other side of the cabin. I'm, uh, I'm already dead, son. Darren looked over to see Bud standing with his hands on his hips, shaking his head in mock sorrow. Darren let out another yell and pulled himself up. He noticed an old wooden rocking chair and hurled it across the room toward the figure. The chair shattered as it hit the wall behind his father, who remained implacable. Sinking to his knees, Darren held his hands to his face and moaned. Why won't you leave me alone? Son, son, listen to me. All right, you, you, you need more junk, right? You need money, right? Darren conceded a slight nod. Yeah, well, imagine what is waiting at your house. Granny lived there for years. She could have jewels, money, a, a, a ton of stuff that you can sell off, right? 
Electronics? Who knows? Darren nodded again. This was why he had embarked on his quest in the first place, and he knew the specter of his father was correct. Good. Now look, son. We're almost there. Just a few more miles. You can hitch or walk. Doesn't matter to me. Darren stood and dusted himself off, then gripped his shoulder where he had slammed into the wall, kneading out the throbbing pain. All right. I'm going. But not for you, you son of a bitch. But when Darren looked up, his dad was gone. Lee carefully picked her way through the tiny scarves that covered the bottom of the dresser drawer. Each one carried a memory, and she remembered wrapping them around her shoulders and neck when she was a little girl to prance through the house like a movie star. She stood in what used to be her room, which had apparently remained largely the same throughout the years. She rummaged through her small closet and dresser drawers. Tiny scarves, baby blankets, a little compact mirror, couple of stuffed animals, even a box of used crayons graced her hands as she carefully looked at each object and placed them into cardboard boxes to be sold, given away, or kept. Each object held a tiny vestige of her childhood and carried an associated memory. Tears would well up as she began to comprehend the vastness of her undertaking, but she would numb them away and reassure herself that these times were far behind her and had no bearing on her current life. Many years had passed, but the memory of her last night in her childhood room remained vivid in her mind, it being the last time she saw her father alive. She was seven, no, eight. She had awoken with a start, a clatter from the kitchen on the floor below jolting her awake. Her heart raced and her eyes roved around wildly as she looked for the source of the noise, but her heart sank as she realized it was coming from downstairs. She knew what it meant. Her father had come home and was extremely drunk. She was lucky, she thought, because her dad didn't take out his anger on her as much. She rolled over and put the pillow over her head to blot out the clattering in the kitchen, now dotted with the angry voices of her father combined with the pleading, shrill voice of her mother. This night seemed different, though. There was something in the air, a crackling of tension, and she could hear another voice coming from the first floor, her brother's. He sounded defiant. His young voice singed with rage through the floorboards. Soon there was a loud crashing sound followed by her mother's scream. This commotion caused Lee to wrap the pillow tighter around her face, but the sound crescendoed and she thought the entire first floor was being flung apart in a vast tornado. Finally, there was a moment of silence and Lee poked her head up from under her protective shell. It was only then that she realized she had been sobbing the entire time. Loud footsteps boomed up the stairs, and Lee braced herself for whatever might come next. Her door suddenly flung open, and to Lee's immense relief, her mother stood in its frame with one arm wrapped around Darren's waist. Her mom's face was swollen, and fresh blood trickled from the corner of her cheek. 
Darren seemed okay, though they would later find that he had a sprained elbow and black and blue welts across his torso and legs. Come on, honey. Pack your things. We're getting out of here. Was all her mother had to say. The sense of relief Lee felt was palpable, but oddly made her feel guilty. The rest of the night was a blur, and the last mental image she had of her father was him sitting on the floor of the living room against the wall, furniture strewn this way and that, head in hands, weeping like a child. He would probably fall asleep that way, she thought, and wake up wondering where his family was. They moved around for the next couple years, mostly living with her aunt. After the divorce, her mom married Ronnie, her father's former best friend and foreman of the coal mine where they had worked together for so long. Life was a little more stable after that, and when word reached them of her father's death, she felt almost no guilt at the relief that had flooded over her. Almost. A soft knock on the door woke Lee from her musings. She looked up to see Ronnie poking his head through the doorframe. Slow going, huh? He said with a wistful smile. Yeah. She admitted and placed the box she didn't realize she was clutching onto the floor. You want to take a break, sweet pea? Ronnie asked while looking around the room. He had never been in here, to her knowledge. No, I'm good. All right. Why don't you hit a different room, then? We haven't touched the basement yet. All right. She said, feeling secretly grateful. Sure. Ronnie stomped over to Lee and planted a kiss on her head. Despite its awkwardness, Lee appreciated the gesture. She made her way to the first floor, past the kitchen, and attached living room where Ronnie had already made short work of the silverware and appliances, placing them in neat rows of boxes all precisely labeled. Ronnie had always been an efficient worker, one of his innate qualities that landed him the role of foreman at the Deepwood Mine. Lee hesitated for a moment before opening the door to the basement. She felt unsettled as she gazed down into its depths. She had forgotten just how steep the stairs were and how dark it was at the bottom. As a little girl, she had avoided going down there at all costs for that reason. Laughing off her childhood fear, Lee made her way down the dark stairs. When she stepped onto the concrete flooring, she was shocked to find that the air was hot and moist and a faint acrid smell touched her nostrils. She had heard about this, but to experience it herself was another matter. Her sense of foreboding increased as she fumbled around in the dark for the pull string to the single light bulb. She found herself almost in a panic as she blindly thrashed around for it in the darkness and heat. When her fingers found the string, she audibly sighed and gave it a tug. The dim bulb lit the basement. She was surprised to find that Granny Louise had done a decent job of organizing and boxing much of the junk that had once strewn the basement. Her dad's old workbench remained in its place, and the washer and dryer were in the spots she always remembered them. She scanned the room and allowed her gaze to land on the earthen wall on the far edge of the basement. Before she realized what she was doing, she found herself standing directly in front of the seven-foot-high wall. She was surprised to realize that her heart was racing and her breaths came in shallow heaves. 
Timidly reaching out her hand, her fingers glance the surface of the earthen wall, warm to the touch. She placed her palms on it, feeling the warm soil under her fingers and allowed some of the soft dirt to run over her hands. She had heard the stories of this wall from her mother. This basement had once been a shaft that connected directly to the mine, but was filled in many years ago when the house was built. So as the fire spread, the basement and this wall began to heat up, a whispering breath of the inferno that raged far beneath it. The coal fire. Underground coal fires are relatively common on Earth. Thousands of them burn daily. Some are natural, some are caused by man. Either way, they are devastating and spread toxic fumes and are extremely hard to put out. They can rage for hundreds and even thousands of years due to their protection from rainwater and snow. The coal continually combusting like a fiery, molten beast under the earth. The deep wood mine was no different. It was a cold December morning when the men arrived at 5.45 a.m. for their shifts, seven in total. They arranged themselves in the large warehouse that acted as an equipment room and meeting place. Ronnie droned over the basics, information they all knew by heart. Jokes were traded, stories of the last Saturday night at the local bar, the seam, when a fight had broken out between a miner and a local drunk. One of the miners sheepishly touched a purple shiner on his face, trying to hide his glow of pride. After the morning meeting, Ronnie stepped forward and singled out Bud, placing a hand on his shoulder. The two had been best friends from childhood, their fathers also miners. Ronnie looked into his friend's face, asking him how he was since the wife and kids left. He hadn't seen him at the bar or anywhere else beside the mine lately. Bud said something unintelligible and nodded. Ronnie clapped him on the back, telling his friend he would be there for him and other such platitudes. Satisfied, Ronnie stepped away to head into the office. Production reports due soon. The men shuffled onto an elevator to begin their long ride into the crust of the earth. Bud stood leaning against the back of the elevator, stomach queasy from his hangover anger burning in his belly like a hot stone. His now empty house greeted him every morning, a grim reminder of his failings. The fallen pictures, the overturned furniture still lying in place from the night his family left. He knew where they were, and he had called his sister-in-law dozens of times, to no avail. She had answered once, asked him not to call back. His mother, Louise, had tried to come over the night before, but he angrily shouted her off of his front porch and lost himself in a handle of old crow, complete with beer chasers. The elevator lurched to a stop and the men stepped off the elevator, the cool earth and dim lighting pressing in on them, surrounding them. Bud was comfortable down here. This was a place he understood. They stepped onto a large, flat rail car, the hutch, and began the 45-minute journey to the site of the long wall. When they arrived, last night's crew stepped onto the rail car, the hum of the hydraulic shearer partly drowning out their hellos and shoulder punches. All in all, it was a typical day. 
Bud lost himself in the work of operating and maintaining the machines, allowing the floodlights and the light from his headlamp to wash away the time. A miner's meditation, where a person could lose themselves in the cool darkness of the earth, the whine of the machines, and the ever-present smell of raw ore. Ronnie sat in his cramped bungalow office, typing figures into a spreadsheet. The walls were littered with maps, diagrams, and other technical information regarding the operation of the Deepwood Mine. His boss was due to arrive any moment now, and he wanted to give him at least a rough estimate before the report was finalized. He sighed and squeezed the bridge of his nose. He liked the upgrade, but spent less time with the boys down below, which he missed. His cell phone rang suddenly. He knew who it was without looking. He flipped the screen up and answered. Hey. Hi. Answered Francis. How are you guys? Ronnie asked, still pinching the bridge of his nose. We're... good. Francis answered, allowing the tone of her voice to express her weariness. I'm sleeping on the couch, but at least the kids have a room, and my sister doesn't seem to mind too much. <laughs> Good. He answered, girding himself. You know, you all can come stay at my place uh, anytime. Plenty of room. A whole house just waiting to be filled. He did everything in his power to sound as casual as possible, pushing the clawing hope back down into his belly. Francis let out a breath on the other end and paused. Uh, I know. It's just... Too soon. Not yet. Hmm? He knew she was right. His chest filled with a tightening mix of emotions. Guilt, yearning, hope, and others he couldn't identify. I, I know. I'm sorry. How is he? Frances asked with a trace of heat in her voice. <laughs> Hung over. Figures. <laughs> you think he knows? No. Ronnie said. I don't think so. Not that I care. Ronnie didn't know what to say at this and remained silent. All right. Uh, Ronnie finally blurted. I, I should get back to it. He stared out the window at the bare trees surrounding the trailer. Love you. Love you. Francis responded and hung up. After Ronnie's meeting with his boss, he decided it was time to head down into the mine with the boys. Enough of this pencil-pushing crap, he thought, and hoisted himself out of his chair. In his memory of the event, there was the shrill sound of an alarm blaring. In actuality, there had been no alarm, just a faint, acrid, burning smell. Ronnie arrived at the elevator, but when the doors opened, before him stood a soot-stained man with wide eyes and a gaping mouth. His clothes were singed, and his hair stood on end under his helmet. The man lurched forward and grabbed Ronnie by his shirt sleeves. Fire was all he could manage to blurt out. The events of the next hours were blurry to Ronnie. He recalled thick smoke, the light of emergency vehicles shouting, and a tightening in his chest as he fought off panic. Through his mind, he ticked off every safety precaution he had taken care to make sure was in place. Everything was in order, and there was no way this was happening in real life. 
No one was sure how the fire had started, but one thing was certain. All seven of the miners who had gone down that morning were dead, including Bud. The fire raged, turning the coal into something akin to molten lava. The mining corporation tried in vain to starve the fire of oxygen, but it was too late. The fire had spread too far, too fast. As time progressed, the molten coal expanded, filling every shaft old and new, leaving the town sitting atop an underground river of molten, toxic fire. The mining corporation and Pennsylvania state officials tried to cover it up, tell residents it was all under control, but the reality couldn't have been farther from the truth, as constant brush fires popped up out of nowhere and toxic fumes permeated the air. Ronnie was cleared of any wrongdoing regarding the fire, as every precaution had been taken to ensure the safety of the miners and the mine. It was ruled a freak accident. Finally, after two years of grieving, arguments, town meetings, lawsuits, angry out-of-work miners, and a whole lot of heartbreak, an agreement was made. Residents of Deepwood were given the option to take a sizable stipend and leave the town. The vast majority of people had left, but some had stubbornly refused, elderly people mostly, people whose roots sank deep into the town. Bud's mom, Granny Louise, was one of these people, opting to stay in her dead son's house until her own death years later. Lee pulled her hand from the wall. She could feel emotions creeping in on her. Her chest tightened and her eyes started to sting with warm tears, but she took a breath and forced it all back, numbing herself once again. After her mom and Ronnie had married, they had taken their stipend and moved far away from Deepwood. Taking a deep breath, she began the work of rummaging through the boxes of knickknacks, sorting them into piles. It was then that she came upon a particular cardboard box placed in the very back corner of the basement, conspicuously covered in many other boxes. It was smallish, and the cardboard was ragged. Lee opened it to find a book. Its soft brown face covered in faded gold leaf, framing an image of some kind of sickled sword. A kopesh, her memory of a Bronze Age art history class told her, an ancient Egyptian weapon. The image was composed in faded gold leaf, and a hand held the curved blade, its unseen wielder gripping the sword with strength. Something about this tome struck her as odd and made her stomach drop slightly. She had never seen it before, but it tickled the back of her mind, a faint memory that slipped through her fingers when she tried to grasp it. She opened it to the first page, only to find a black-and-white photo of her mother and Granny Louise. The photo looked to be from the early part of the 20th century, thick with an embroidered frame, which was impossible given her mom's age. It must have been taken with an old camera. Her mom looked young and radiant and stood with Louise in a dark room, looking into the camera with solemn looks on their faces, holding hands. They wore white-gray robes, and their eyes seemed to penetrate Lee through the photograph. There were many odd things about this photo. 
The room behind them was dark, but from what she could make out, it seemed to bend at weird angles, distorting the figures in the foreground. Unnerved, Lee flipped through the pages only to find more pictures. Her mom and her aunt posing with some of their girlfriends she recognized from Deepwood, all of them gazing solemnly at the camera, all wearing the same strange gray-white garments, all in the same strange dark room. Their eyes seemed to watch Lee intently as she flipped through the book. Finally, she slammed it shut, allowing her nerves to get the better of her. She took out her phone and took a quick picture of the cover, texting it to her mom with the caption, What the hell is this? Lee crinkled her brow while she waited for a response. She received a quick text from her mother. Oh, just an old art project. You can toss it. A sudden noise upstairs shook her from her concentration. The sound of breaking glass, followed by the sounds of intense, muffled shouting. Dropping the book back into its ratty container, Lee rushed up the stairs into the living room and her breath caught in her throat when she found the source of the noise. Her brother Darren stood in a pool of broken glass from a window he had just smashed in. His blue eyes were sunken into their sockets, his clothes were torn and ragged, and his threadbare boots were covered in snow. His hair was scraggly and the smell of B.O. and urine wafted in behind him. His ungloved hands were quivering, and his eyes roved wildly about the room. She had seen this look on him before. She guessed correctly that he had not used in at least a few days and was in severe withdrawal. Ronnie was mid-monologue when Lee opened the door from the basement. God damn it! Didn't you see my truck out front, Darren? The light's on? Are you so out of your goddamn mind right now that you can't even knock on the door, you idiot? What are you doing here, anyway? Shouldn't you be in uh, rehab or, I don't know, anywhere else but here? Ronnie fumed at Darren. But there was a slight crack underneath his voice. Ronnie had cared for Darren as best he could after his dad's death and the subsequent move out of Deepwood and tried to undo the damage that Bud had caused him. The family had given Darren chance after chance after chance. Money, rides to facilities, connections to jobs, places to stay, anything they could afford to give him to help him recover. But Darren had broken their trust one too many times. Stolen their money, pills, electronics, anything he could get his hands on. He had even gotten violent with them, and at some point, Ronnie, Lee, and Francis had been forced to treat Darren like he was a non-entity, like he was dead and gone. Lee had grieved for her brother for years, but finally moved on. Seeing him like this opened up old wounds, and Lee had to work to numb herself from the pain. Listen here, you turn right the fuck around and get the hell out of this house right now. Ronnie picked up a kitchen knife out of one of the boxes on the floor. Darren barely seemed to register it as he staggered forward with his eyes fixed on the back corner of the room. Lee turned to see where Darren was staring, but found nothing. You... You betrayed me. You shit! And with that, he fell to his knees and spewed vomit all over the floor in his clothes. He let out a gasp and rolled onto his side, weakly reaching his hand out to the empty corner of the room, then slumped to the ground and into unconsciousness. Shit. Ronnie cursed and dropped the knife back into the box. Well, ain't that a kick in the ass. 
Let's get him into the shower. Two hours later, Darren lay on Lee's old bed, breathing heavily, still unconscious, but freshly showered. Lee sat beside him, lips pursed. This was not the first time Lee had been in this kind of situation with her brother, and she felt swells of emotion threatening to overtake her as she sat and scanned his weather-beaten face for any hint of the boy she once knew. This was by far the worst shape she had seen him in. She thought of the painstaking time it took her to grieve the loss of her brother to addiction and frowned. She was not ready to restart the process all over again. But seeing him here, asleep, brought back all of the bittersweet memories they shared. Before she knew it, she was reaching out to touch his hand, which rested limply on the side of the bed. He had been waking up sporadically, muttering expletives to some invisible phantom in his mind. It's the junk, she kept telling herself, and finally left him. They covered the broken window with plywood and plastic, and after a dinner of pretty good pizza delivery from one of the last businesses in town, and a hefty discussion about what to do about her brother that led nowhere, Lee made her bed on the living room couch. She was exhausted, and sleep found her almost instantly. She awoke a few hours later with a start. Images of a quickly fading dream were rummaging through her mind. Her brother standing in the deep shaft of a dark mine with his back to her. Her father's figure crouched on the floor as flames consumed him, crumbling into ash. Her mother standing in a wooden room with odd angles, holding hands with her ex-mother-in-law, eyes penetrating. But the images were fading quickly. Lee stumbled to the kitchen for a glass of water, bumping her hip into the low counter. As she rubbed her side in pain, a noise froze her. She stood upright and strained to listen, willing the sound to be a fluke. But it was no fluke. A distant, angry moaning penetrated the air around her, and she slowly turned to face its direction. The basement. She gazed at the door, faded and brown with age, and shuddered, taking a tentative step towards it straining to listen over the sudden pounding of her blood, now rushing through her ears. She heard something crash and fall, followed by a muffled cry of anguish. Lee strained to push her fear down, but the torrent rushed over her and her stomach dropped through the floor. Yet despite her shaking hands and queasy stomach, the sounds of anguish awoke a sense of compassion. She forced herself to grip the door handle, but thought better of it, and placed her ear against the solid wood, praying the sounds were imaginary. They weren't. It took all of her might not to turn around and run out of the front door. But something was going on here, she felt. Something far beyond her comprehension and she was just beginning to understand that her past didn't quite add up. There was a glaring puzzle piece missing. Lee took a longing look at the front door. She could easily wake up Ronnie, get in the truck, and leave this all behind. 
never look back. Yet something nagged on her, pulled on her to stay, to dig, to unearth her truth buried under deep wood. The answers, she thought, were probably in that dark basement. She placed her hand on the door handle and slowly pulled it to peer down into the pitch black depths below. Fire Part 2, now streaming. To learn more about the podcast, please visit www.nightscapepod.com. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a donation to our Patreon. It's you, the listeners, that keep this podcast ticking. Nightscape, the door is open.